Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. As we continue to walk through stories we never read in church this series, we're going to wander through Ezra's story today. It was surprising to me to see that this book never comes up in the lectionary. Let me know what you think, and if you start tapping the steering wheel or singing along as you hear today's pop culture reference. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook. Drop me a message anytime, and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for the show if you haven't already, wherever you listen. And now you can also find the show online. Visit our website, www.godknowswherepod.com to see more about the show, catch up on old episodes. I'm also trying to get transcripts up there if you'd like to read more or read along after you've listened to the show. I've also got a little one-page document up there with references to all the stories we leave out of scriptures, not just the ones I've been talking about this series. And that's where you can also read more about an upcoming project I'm working on with a couple of friends for Advent. Every year, our family talks through the Christmas story at breakfast or dinner each day, one little piece each day throughout the season of Advent as we do our Advent calendar, whether it's Lego Harry Potter or traditional Legos or those ones with the little chocolates. But we've never found a version of the story that works or that's long enough for us to use for the whole month. So I wrote one, and I want to share it with y'all. It's part story, part art, part music. I think you're really going to enjoy it, and it'll be out soon. So head over to godknowswherepod.com slash advent and sign up to be the first to know when it becomes available. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. I hope you enjoy today's episode, Better Than Ezra. A reading from Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. When I heard this, I tore my garment, Ezra said, and my mantle, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. At the evening sacrifice, I got up from my fasting with my garments and my mantle torn, and fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors to this day, we have been in deep guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been handed over to the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as is now the case. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, who has left us a remnant and given us a stake in his holy place, in order that he may brighten our eyes and grant us a little sustenance in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to give us new life, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us all a wall in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Would you not be angry with us until you destroy us without remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just. But we have escaped as a remnant, as is now the case. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can face you because of this. 
If you've listened to earlier episodes of God Knows Where, especially this series, you know that I love a good pop culture reference, and I really love it when there is a song that mirrors the scripture, like the ones I've already mentioned, Hey Jude by The Beatles or How Will I Know by Whitney Houston. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, scroll back a few episodes and it should all make sense. And if it doesn't, do what my friend Larry did and let me know. That said, you could very easily say that I desperately wanted any of Better Than Ezra's songs for my adolescence to fit that bill today, especially their 1996 hit, Desperately Wanting. There's probably an 87% chance that if you see me driving in my car and I'm singing something, I'm belting out Desperately Wanting. But sometimes life doesn't work out the way you want it to, and you're forced to go back to the drawing board. And it turns out, though, that's exactly what the Jews are doing here in Ezra. But they weren't forced back to the drawing board. They got to go back to the drawing board. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had decreed that they may return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's basically all they've wanted for generations. So much of what we read of their lives after David and Solomon come and go is about exile, what led to it, and what it will be like for them when they are no longer exiled. But we never read Ezra. Not once is a single reading from this book in our lectionaries. And it's the book that's all about rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. It's all about the first steps towards what life will be like after the exile. It's all about them being exactly where they've wanted to be, doing exactly what they've wanted to do after all those years. And yet we don't bring ourselves into that story because we choose to avoid this book. And this book isn't like the others that we avoid. There's not really anything that awful, at least not as awful as some books have, that we want to avoid. Sure, it's full of examples of people missing the point, but that's true for every book in the Bible that we read. There's even this beautiful lament from Ezra that I just read that we overlook. So why do we avoid it? I think we overlook Ezra because it is a string of, as Tim Mackey calls them, anticlimactic stories. This foreign king has welcomed them back home and granted them the chance to rebuild their temple, and they do. But the new temple isn't the old temple. It doesn't hold the same power. During their first time of worship in the new temple, God's presence failed to fill the room as it had when Solomon's temple was built and inaugurated. And so for some, there's great disappointment. And that disappointment leads to strife. And then, years later, Ezra is supposed to come and rebuild the community. But by the time he's done, the community has been split apart. What's supposed to happen doesn't happen. At least not the way they wanted it to happen. This is a story filled with unfulfillment. And there's two reasons for that. They're both kind of hidden from plain sight, at least for us today. But for different reasons. The first is that it ends unfulfilled because the end of Ezra is not the end of the story. Ezra is the first part of a bigger book that concludes with the book of Nehemiah, the one where the building comes to its completion. The final bricks are laid in the wall around Jerusalem and the complete rebuilding is finished. Ezra and Nehemiah are one big book that tell one big story and to split them up the way we do turns Ezra into this confusing book with a sad and unfulfilling ending. The second reason, though, is even more hidden because we don't read the story. The return to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple doesn't go smoothly. 
It's like me building anything. I trust myself enough to get a general plan of what I want to build or need to build, and I get started. And then there are waves of trips to and from the hardware store to get the things that I forgot or didn't know I would need or hadn't planned for needing to complete the task. And then it's filled with strife. There's lots of strife whenever I build anything. And it often ends up just about like you'd expect. I built a fence around our garden a few years ago, and while all the angles were right, everything was at a 90-degree angle. I never accounted for the fact that there was a slope in one side of the plot, and so I ended up with an almost rectangular fence before I had to backtrack and fix the fence so that it would all connect. This process in Jerusalem is like that. It's not smooth. The people come back to Jerusalem in waves over many years. The first ones back rebuilt the temple, and later ones will rebuild the walls. But the folks who come back with Ezra come back with the explicit purpose to rebuild the community in their old home. Ezra's purpose was to teach Torah in the temple and to restore the community. But that's an odd order to do things, isn't it? To build a temple and then rebuild the community and then build the walls. Why doesn't the community come first? Why does the community come second? I mean, I get the if you build it, they will come idea, but very rarely do we hear of communities or groups or organizations or churches that started with a building and then figured out who they are or who God was calling them to be or who was in and who was out and then figuring out how to strengthen and fortify themselves. Usually, they start with the people. All this disorder and the choppy return to Jerusalem leads to problems. And I know after all the years that they'd spent in exile, the people were ready to be home. They just wanted to get back to what they knew and what they loved. They were ready to be home. They were ready for things to be the way they were. My father-in-law had a horse named Jericho. And when Jericho was ready to go back to the barn, he didn't care if you were having a great time or a great ride or accomplishing whatever you needed to do out in the field. When he was ready, he turned his head and went back. Jericho was headed to that barn. And while, like Jericho, the Jews were headed to the barn, they were ready to go home, a lot had changed in exile. The community had changed. They were gone from Jerusalem for a very long time. Long enough for children to be born and to grow up and to get married and start families in exile. And because the people who left Jerusalem didn't all go to the same places, that meant some of these folks married people who weren't Jewish. And they had no idea when or if they would ever be able to get back to Jerusalem, to their home. So they started their lives anew out where they lived. They tried to bloom where they were planted. And when they got the chance to come home, they came home to a place that didn't welcome them. Not long after coming back in their wave, some Jewish leaders approach Ezra and tell him that there are some who were unfaithful to the tradition and had married non-Jews. That was the beginning of what we read earlier. They come to Ezra claiming that some in the community should not be in the community. And Ezra doesn't fact check them. He doesn't ask or investigate to see if what they're telling him is true. He just takes their word for it. And he launches into this lament I read a bit ago and into this effort to break up their families. 
And the people who come to Ezra, they don't even say that God made it clear to them. They just say that they know it. And we don't even hear or get the hint that God says anything to Ezra about who should be in or who should be out. These folks just come in with this story and tell Ezra, and he takes it hook, line, and sinker and goes from there. Now, I'm not saying the officials had a vendetta against anyone or that they were tattletales or even that they were wrong. Everything seems to point to the fact that they were right, that some had gone against the Torah and married outside their religion. But their response, their desired response from Ezra and from the other officials also goes against Torah. They wanted them to divorce their foreign spouses and divorce was explicitly forbidden. So something had to give. And these folks, these officials, these leaders, with Ezra's blessing, did what we humans are wont to do. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know how to react or how to respond, we fall back on what we've always done. Not because it's right, but because it's what we know. And they had this brand spanking new temple, and they couldn't risk it being soiled by foreigners. So they had to kick them out. They'd been so excited to return home, so ready to get back to life as they knew it or as they'd been told it would be that they got ahead of themselves, that they never considered the ways their community might have changed over the years, the way they might need to think about their community differently coming into this new Jerusalem. What makes Ezra such an unfulfilling story beyond the book ending with the ripping apart of families is that it all could have gone so differently. Ezra could have asked more questions. The people could have asked more questions. There could have been more conversations about who they were and who they've become and who God is calling them to be, where and how and when they heard God speak while they were in exile, wherever they were in exile. But none of that happens. No questions are asked, not even of God. They had this moment, they had this special moment in time where if they had taken time to take stock of everything and everyone before they rushed in to make it just the way it was, just the way it had always been, they could have made it new with God and each other. And the answers to all those questions could have helped them rebuild their community without so much pain. In an interview about the song he wrote, Kevin Griffin of Better Than Ezra said that desperately wanting is about how when you're young and you're running around all night and life hasn't had its way with you yet, the playing field is equal and it's flat. And then life takes everybody on their own journeys. But there's a time where all your potential is untapped and the world hasn't had its way with you. That's an amazing time of promise. And that's what Desperately Wanting is about. There was a time of promise for the people in this story. A window where even though life had already had its way with them out in exile, there was untapped potential for their life ahead. But they, with Ezra's help, so desperately wanted to come home, to be home, that they forgot how to make home, home for their entire community. In all the ways that it had changed and grown over those years. When we find ourselves in growing season, when we find ourselves in seasons of building or rebuilding, creating or repairing, we can't forget to build our organizations and our churches and our communities and our families 
around our people first. We've got to build them from the inside out. We can't get distracted by building out around them until we're sure we've laid good foundations. If we build it, they may come. But what will they find or what will we find when we get there? A community that's restored and reconciled or one that's rife with resentment and being ripped apart? Put simply, as we build our communities, as we repair and rebuild our communities if they're broken, we've got to do our best to do better than Ezra. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family, and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.